Welcome to the Retail Exchange Podcast. In case you're just recently joining us or however long you've been a listener of the Retail Exchange Podcast, you may not realise that we have over five years of incredible episodes in our archive. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to listen back to some of our previous episodes of the interview series, featuring insight and opinion from inspiring senior retail leaders. We hope you enjoy this episode with Little Moon's founder, Vivian Wong. Welcome to the interview series on the Retail Exchange podcast with me, Carl McKeever. Our guest today is Vivian Wong, founder of Little Moon's. As children growing up in their parents' bakery in London, Vivian and her brother Howard were surrounded by a passion for creating amazing food and learnt how the little things combine to make a big difference. From finding the best ingredients to always innovating with flavours and techniques, fun, hardworking and family were at heart. In 2010, they set up Little Moons, making a Japanese-inspired dessert called Muchi. After enjoying steady growth, the company set up Little Moon's TikTok account and began posting videos. And then things began to get really interesting. Soon they had over 500 million views and Little Moon sales skyrocketed by 2,000%. Here's their story. Vivian, welcome. Thanks, thanks for having me. So for those who don't know the brand, tell us something about Little Moon's. So Little Moons, we manufacture mochi ice cream. And so mochi is a Japanese dough made from rice flour that's a sort of soft, sweet dough. And we wrap that around ice cream in in little balls, kind of golf-sized balls of ice cream. What inspired you, and I believe it's with your brother, to, to, to launch the brand? Our parents had a bakery that made traditional mochi um, for many years before that. And traditional mochi usually has a red bean filling, which is less sort of, I guess it's less attractive to the Western palate because of the, of the texture and the, and the taste. So we loved mochi, the dough. And so when we tried mochi ice cream in the States and in Japan, we thought this, this product's amazing. We really have to bring it over to the UK. Another thing that inspired us to start Little Moons was when we saw how popular Japanese food was getting and there were so many Japanese restaurants and they didn't provide great desserts. And we thought mochi ice cream would be perfect to end a sushi dinner and things like that. So, you know, we, we really saw a gap in the market for the product. And so we did some planning and we both worked corporate jobs and we made the decision to leave and to set up Little Moons selling mochi ice cream. So you're working with your brother and it's a family business. How does that go? Because, you know, many brother and sister relationships are kind of fought with rivalries and all that kind of stuff. How do you get on? We're both very, very close. We did a personality test, I want to say five years ago, and it was one of those colour tests where you can answer lots of questions and they tell you what colour you are. Like I think it's either red, blue, green or yellow. And we came out absolute polar opposites. Like we couldn't have been more different. And it kind of made us understand why we work so well together and we built a successful business together, but also why there's, there's also sometimes conflict because the way that I handle things is completely different to the way that he handles things. Mm. Looking at that gap in the market, did that also give you an initial kind of almost point of entry in terms of who you would target from a kind of which retailers, wholesalers, restaurants, etc., that you were trying to approach? Absolutely. We knew that we weren't ready to go straight into retail, into the grocery stores, because no one would know the product well enough to take it off the shelf, like a whole six pack of it. So we thought the best way to, to grow the market would be through restaurants, through the Itsus, through the Yosushis, through the higher end restaurants. We worked with Nobu for many years and 
people that go to, say, Nobu, they've traveled, they like trying new things. Same as people that go to Yosushi and Itsu, they all know that they like Japanese food, and so they're more willing to try a dessert that's a little bit unusual. Mm -hmm. So we did target the restaurants first. We built a market up there. And then when we felt the market was ready, we launched into, into Whole Foods, into retail. And I suppose going to the restaurants first, you're, you're already talking essentially in some ways to the educated. People who are looking for quality and maybe something that's a bit different. So perhaps there's an influencer group there as well that also could help to promote and cascade the brand. Absolutely, because the chefs knew the product, they loved the product, they, they could tell the, the, the quality of it. So we make restaurant quality desserts that we now sell you know in grocery but it was a great platform they put it on the all the chefs put it on the menu and I think people are more likely to order something they don't know in a restaurant than take it off the shelves so yes it, yeah. everything you said is, is exactly why we did it we're all in a kind of more heightened experimental zone when we when we dine out aren't we absolutely yeah cool so in the early years you had a great idea you know you'd, you'd seen the, the kind of the, the the love and the care of a family bakery etc what were some of the challenges in terms of taking that idea and turning that into a reality and a physical product that you could say yep we have something here i did learn a lot from working in the family bakery which i did whilst I was going through school and supporting my, my parents at the weekend. And so I could see what, how much heart it takes to develop a product. My, my parents would never sell anything. It was like they were serving it to their guests. They wouldn't serve a dessert unless it was absolutely perfect. They put a lot of love and a lot of flavor and ingredients in. For example, winter melon is a very expensive ingredient. My parents put a lot of it into their biscuits. And that's what we've learned to put into our, into our mochis. So we learned the recipe off my dad, like how to make great mochi, because not all mochi dough is created equal. And so we spent a lot of time developing that dough. And we also then spent a lot of time developing our, our fillings. Um, to make sure that they're incredibly full of flavour. Mm. So I guess some of those, those values of the family have come through into your own business now. Yes, it's very much a family business. Every, and as we've grown as well, it's been, it's been a struggle to keep that culture the same, but I, I'd like to think that we, we have kept up with it because we, we employ about 300 people now. So wow. that's great. So and what do you both bring to the party and what, what are your strengths versus his strengths? So Howard is incredibly analytical. He is a little bit more risk adverse than I am and I'm very practical like I like to get things done I, I'd rather sort of just get doing things rather than talk about them so we do well together because we need to think things through and then I just get on and do it and I think that's that's kind of where our, our skills differ um, and right now he takes care of sales and marketing on the t on in Little Moons and I do operations and finance Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. so it's a real case of kind of complementary opposites attract, really, yeah. and, and can work well together. So the challenges of taking the idea and bringing it to scale, where were some of the pinch points there or some of those really big milestones that you think, oh, wow, it's hard at the time, but we got there? So I think we were quite lucky in that we grew each year. I think we doubled in size, but we started from a very small base. And so it was quite a slow, steady growth. So we could learn how to manufacture more and more as we supplied bigger restaurants and their orders increased. We could match it because we were slowly learning. And then I think this year with the TikTok craze that we had, that was a real struggle for the business to increase production as quickly as we did overnight because we're very much a craft business. We use a lot of labor. We don't automate our process. So that was definitely a turning point for us when we, when we hit TikTok and we really had to grow at speed. I guess the other key points were turning points for the business, I think, was when we got big enough to employ a professional senior leadership team because a lot of the time it had just been my brother and I. And I feel like we did that in 2018. And so we got a, a head of finance in, a head of sales, head of marketing, um, an ops director. And it was just all, it, that was a turning point for the business because it stopped being just my brother and I and we had a proper 
leadership team to help us to grow the business. And, and how easy was that? Because I can understand it's an, an important stage and something that was, you know, for all startups where really want to then kind of really, really develop that they need to do that. But obviously that must come with some questions as well. And also finding those people and then bringing them on board and, and letting them almost into your world. Mm-hmm. How was that? So... I think I've heard that a lot of people do struggle with that. We got some really good advice from our non-executive director who said, hire the best people that you can afford. And so instead of, you know, if you can afford more, like a 10,000 more salary, like do it, go for it where you can, because it will definitely pay it back. So we hired really smart people. And because we had confidence in them, we, my brother and I, were very happy to to relinquish control and let them do their thing. And I think by empowering your team, it just makes them work better. And everyone was just really passionate about growing the business. And I think that really helped us with our success. Mm. And has that given you more time back now, essentially, to think about you know, nurturing, growing the business in different ways because other people are, in a sense, taking care of some aspects of the day job? Yeah, it's just made me realize that when, when we were younger, I, I really wasn't adding value in, in certain things, but I, I had to, like I had to pack the boxes and we, we did start the business from that stage. But when we did bring the, the senior leadership team in, absolutely, it just meant that I could think more strategically, more big picture, and I was less sort of down in the day-to-day grind. As a revolutionary product in the UK market, what have been some of the challenges there in terms of almost trying to educate a consumer in terms of what the product is and how it's different to anything else? That's definitely one of our biggest challenges when we first started. I used to do a lot of sampling all over, like any event we could have, we'd start sampling. I think the only way to really educate people about food is to let them eat it. So we sampled everywhere that we could. Like I said, we then went to restaurants. And I think the best way to grow a product, like grow a brand, is, is through word of mouth. And so I, I think that that a lot of our fans are through hearing it from word of mouth than through TikTok. But we've been doing this for 10 years, so and our business has been growing prior to that. And I think it's all through word of mouth, through friends. People love telling friends about new products they've tried, delicious things, bringing them out at dinner parties. And I think it just sort of spread the word that way. I mean, we do explain on the back of the pack that mochi is a soft, sweet dough. But I think it was just, I think it was just word of mouth that everyone just mm. realized that it was slightly weird, but it and the, was and the product, delicious. The product is quite pretty and the packaging is very attractive. So, you know, maybe there's a natural curiosity there for people to just, you know, you know, go for it. Yeah, I think it was, it helps that the product's really Instagrammable. You can create beautiful photos with it so I think it just sort of like spread and and lots of people like talking about it and taking photos of it so you've mentioned Instagram and TikTok has come up a couple of times in this chat we're having together tell us about that moment on TikTok because I think something pretty stellar happened yeah so like I said we've been running this business since 2010 and we've been growing steadily as a business we already stocked in Ocado, Waitrose and, and Tesco's and then in January 2021 we had a little spike in our hashtag little moons on TikTok and we thought oh that's interesting what's happening there and then I think a couple of it took about 10 days and on on day 10 we, we saw that we had 25 million views two days later we had 50 million views wow and it was because someone had posted a video of them going to a big Tesco's on a little adventure to find little moons and she picked it off the shelf she bought it, she took it to the car, took a bite and rated us 10 out of 10, love it. And I think it just captured people's imagination. Everyone was tired of lockdown. Going to the supermarket was the only permissible adventure. And so everyone just thought, you know what, we're going to go look for it too. And it just caught fire. And, and then everything was sold out everywhere. So you could actually track it then from that event, from that video posted on TikTok, to then a few days later, there was a sellout. 
Absolutely. Com wow. Completely down to that. Like, we think we know what video zero was, but you can't actually tell because TikTok videos aren't, aren't on the timeline. And this was something which was not placed, it was not of your direction. This was a consumer having fun and telling the world. Yeah, and that was the beauty of it. And that's the beauty of TikTok, that it's consumer-led content. It wasn't anything that we'd seeded, and it came as, as a surprise to us as well. But then because everything was sold out in the Tesco's and all the sort of smaller supermarkets that we have and then on Ocado, people started frantically making videos and trying to find it, like running down the street, going into an Asda, going to the same street. So this must have caused an enormous, sudden, immediate pressure on production. Huge. Okay. Absolutely huge. And it, it was great. It was, so the good side was that, you know, the Asdas, the Sainsbury's and Morrison's all called us and they, they asked for listings, but then we couldn't keep up with production anyway. So how did you cope? Well, it, what made it even harder was we had, you know, Brexit issues, so we couldn't find enough staff. There was a labour shortage. I think there was a global cardboard shortage. So even though we made the product, we couldn't send it out because we couldn't get any cardboard. It was difficult to get ingredients because there were no sea containers. I, I don't know. If so it's almost reason. a perfect storm. It was an absolute perfect storm, and the supermarkets were just calling, just saying, you know, they were actually incredibly understanding because our rate of sale went up so high. I think the average is, I, I don't know what it is. I'll, I'll say like ten. We went up to hundred, and so they understood that no, no company. Could so keep in that up. impossible situation, how how do you decide who gets? whatever stock of mochi is available? Because clearly you've got your independence, there's a restaurant community that you still want to remain very loyal to. You've got these now big corporate brands which are saying, we want you, we want you. Yeah. How do you make the call who gets you? It's really difficult. And I think that you have to prioritise the customers where demand is the highest, so it had to be Tesco's. We had to, you know, that's where a lot of it was going to. We did try and save some stock back, so we agreed with Tesco's, we're going to give you this amount of stock. So it meant that we knew that we would have certain amount of stock left to, to supply our other, other customers. And so it was just trying to keep everyone happy with right. the level of stock that they had. But everyone was pretty understanding because they understood. And, you know, even the smaller stores that I went to see, like the Asian grocery stores, they just, they were like... That was a mini hero product because so many people were running down there to, to try and get little moons. They, you know, we brought in new customers for them as well. So it was all, it was all really nice. So initially, you, I think you approached Whole Foods Market. How was that process? Because I think one of the things that's really interesting, after the TikTok moment, the phone was ringing to you. And that's the best scenario, isn't it? Where you don't have to go knock on doors and say to people, hello, hello, will, yeah. you, will you look at us? Yeah. They come to you, which is the way that all brands would like it to be. Yeah. But when you were a startup and you're saying, you had to reverse that and yeah. I guess going to Whole Foods. Tell us about that experience. So going into Whole Foods, I love this story because we, we'd been trying to sell to distributors and food service, right? So I'd go to a distributor and they'd say they look at me and be like, you look really young. Your business doesn't have any track record. How do I know you're still going to be here in six months' time? And so that was so hard because it's then a chicken and egg situation. Yeah, and all your passion and the thing that you've been totally focused on, you've got 100% belief in, someone's almost raining on your parade. Completely. Okay. And so when we went to Whole Foods, we were really prepared. We'd spoken to loads of people in the industry. They said, look, Whole Foods are super busy. Everyone goes to them. Don't expect an answer. You're going to have to like knock on their door. We'd heard stories of suppliers like sitting on the street waiting for the buyer to come to work to, just so that they could meet them. So we thought we'd start off with an introductory email and we just sort of sent an email with all our blurb and with some information about our product. And I want to say seven minutes later, we got a response. Wow. And they said, you had me at Mochi. <laughs> and it was just, I remember just celebrating with my brother when the email came back. And um, that buyer just absolutely supported us. He absolutely loved the product. And I think it was a pretty quick listing for us. So 
Congratulations. Really, yeah, we're yeah. really lucky. And how important do you think it is to have that kind of initial success to really then give you the confidence to say, yeah, this is right, we're on our way. We became the best-selling ice cream in Whole Foods, but because Whole Foods has got a very specific customer base, we wanted to make sure that we were going to be a popular product across the UK, not just in London and not, not just sort of like for the wealthier consumers. We wanted to democratise it. So we still had our doubts whether we would work outside of London and things like that. So we were still building up that market. So we were still working on that. And then we did. We, we, we went to Ocado and we, you can see from the data where your customers are buying us from. And it was mainly London, but then it was also little hubs outside of London. And we thought, oh, we've got to build on that. And then we got listed with Tesco's and I think they slowly saw that actually our sales were coming from outside of London as well. And they gave us more and more stores. And so we just sort of built that market that way. And I think from a marketing point of view, we just sort of targeted different areas as well, just to make sure that people from outside of London were also discovering us. And, and how important was, in a sense, almost that a Japanese community to your growth? Or was that something you didn't necessarily focus on, but it was more about introducing people to Mochi? We didn't target the Japanese community, although I, we did get messages where people championed us and said, we love finally that the delicious matcha mochi that reminds me of the stuff I used to get from home. But we were targeting the sort of wider audience and, and educating them about mochi. Fantastic. I believe quality is so important in food production and I think it's the thing which um, really differentiates those brands which are the pioneers, people that really have got something original and new and, and, and you know, lead the way. How important is quality to you and what kind of lengths do you go to to ensure the quality, especially when you're getting an even bigger distribution all the time? Yeah, quality is, is number one on our list. Um, and as we've grown and, um, and had to scale up, we've always made sure that we, our recipe is still the same and we source the same products and we, we do go out and buy incredibly expensive ingredients um, because we wanted to taste as, as fresh and as strong tasting as, as you mentioned about our tropical. Absolutely, that's the most important thing to us. So everything that we do, we want it to be just super tasty, like our strawberries and cream, just absolutely of strawberries and cream. And have you ever faced any of those kind of tough corporate questions, I guess, where, you know, you're looking at uh, production rates and you're looking at margin and you think, you know, some, some people might be nagging in your ear and saying, well, look, we could potentially change a supplier here and, you know, go for this alternative or maybe use this filler instead of this thing here. How do you cope in that environment or don't those conversations take place? Those conversations definitely take place. We have tried to find a different mango um, puree supplier, but the quality just wasn't there. We did blind taste and all of our team could just tell there was a slight difference because ours is so zingy. You lose that, like sometimes if you get it, you know, in, in, in different packaging or in di from different suppliers, it's just not the same. So we just stuck with our really sort of top quality mango puree. And we're lucky enough to to not have outside investment. My brother and I grew this business slowly ourselves. And so we don't have people in our ear telling us, like, you know, really putting pressure on us to increase those margins. We're sort of happy with where we are and we want to, we want to put out this level of product, which makes me really proud. Because I think sometimes that can be the conflict, can't it? When, when you have, you know, investors who are looking for ever-increasing profits, to the extent where some brands, you know, will even employ people, you know, with a specific remit to look at how they can manage the quality to create the highest profits. By the sounds of it, that's something that you would never do. We would never compromise our quality um, and we don't have anyone. I'm, I'm very happy with our margins as they are and so I'm, I'm glad that we don't have any pressure. We, I have been on the other side of that where we've had big restaurant groups send in their supply chain negotiators to really push us down on price. And we just say, well, 
we just can't do it. If you if you don't want to pay this price and you want a less well, I guess less good product, we can't make that for you because that, that you, we're not putting little moons to that name. And that's your reputation on the Absolutely, line. Absolutely, yeah. When you think back to when you and Howard first started the business, what in your philosophy then remains today? I think a lot of the philosophy is still there. We want to run a business with people we really enjoy working with. We want to make products that we're really proud of. And we just want to enjoy what we're doing. And I, I, you know, we, those three things are all still true. So I think we've tried to grow our business with the same ethos that we always had, which is a family business. We want to treat everyone like a member of our family. And you know, hopefully our product hasn't diluted in quality as we've scaled up. Now, I'm very lucky in as much that a member of the production team here at the Retail Exchange podcast has just brought along some mochi for me to sample. So, Vivian, I have to ask you, as the expert and founder of the business, is there a way to eat this? What, what must I do? So, for the listeners, I have a beautiful little tub here and I have three um, very pretty, uh, slightly lilac uh, little mini golf balls, which are um, sort of almost looking sugar-coated, but they're not, I believe. No. This is just the kind of the frosting of the frozen process on the outside yeah that's actually coated in rice flour just to stop it sticking oh, okay um, and the one that you have is our vegan mango and and passion fruit flavor and i believe this is your uh, most popular flavor yeah that's our best-selling flavor so we always say wait five minutes from when you've taken it straight out the freezer because it's not nice eating something that's rock hard so i'm just saying leave it for five minutes okay let it warm up a little bit just so you can bite through it and then all the flavor will come through so um that those are my instructions i would say you can use your fingers i like eating with my hands it's just delicate three bites and you're done or you've got a toothpick or if you want you can cut them in half it's always nice to serve them at dinner parties i think cut in half so people can see what to expect just how thick the, the dough is which is actually very thin and just to see the really colorful ice cream that we always have so if you were going to present this at home at, at a dinner party you would put it on a plate maybe slice one in half yep does anything else go onto the plate? Do you put some mint leaves or...? No, but I think there's some restaurants that decorate it beautifully with dry ice and fruit and serve it with, you know, fruit and some flowers and some leaves any way that you want. But I also think it's so easy and simple just to cut them in half, open them up so people can have a half of different flavours and mix and match. And it's always a talking point at the end of dinner. So I'm just going to uh, let these literally chill out for, yeah. for a moment or two. And I'm just going to increasingly look at see if everything changes. I'm salivating already as I look at these. Of the, of the flavours that you produce, this is the, the most popular. What other flavours are there and how do they rank? I think our top selling flavour is the tropical, like we said. Um, then coconut's very popular. Um, our pistachio, I'm particularly proud of. We've got little bits of roasted pistachio in there it's 100% pistachio paste and I think that flavor really comes through I think some people bulk out their pistachio with an almond or something like that we, we would never do that so I love our pistachio what else is what mango Alfonso mango it just tastes like eating a frozen mango I, I love that flavor that's been a favorite of mine for a long time but and yeah. you have some very exotic ingredients there how how challenging have they been to obtain during the pandemic so matcha green tea has been quite difficult to get because um, we buy it from a specific region in, in Japan. Everything's been difficult to get. Yeah, like milk, sugar. Sometimes you have the ingredients, but you don't have the drivers to deliver it. Sometimes you, they've got the ingredients, but they don't have, you know, shipping container. But yeah, it's been, it's been difficult, but we've managed. Right, well, look, five minutes has to be up, and even if it isn't, I'm going to be diving in. So for everyone listening at home, this is a live taste test, so bear with. Mm. 
Wow. It's really intense. Right? Mm. Just the fruitiness explodes. Mm -hmm. There's a slight floweriness on the lip. Yep. And an icy coolness to it, but yep. I wouldn't describe it as cold. No. It just makes you tingle. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's quite refreshing. Yeah, very I, much. It almost has a, the, um, the flavor of a sorbet mm -hmm. in the inside, but I couldn't quite tell you what I think the outside reminds me of. It's, it's new. Yes. It's unlike anything else you've ever eaten. I think it's just a bit like um, boiled rice, which is a swish between your fingers and it gets a bit tacky. That, that's basically what the dough is. Right. And that's why the flour is then needed, as you say, to prevent them sticking together. Exactly. Yeah. And the one you're eating is actually vegan. I don't know if you can tell if it's a vegan ice cream. I have to confess, no. It, um, my palate is not that sophisticated to get it. But all I can say is it's entirely delicious and I shall be finishing off the pot um, when we finish our interview. Thank you. We only launched our vegan range when we, could, when we were so happy that you couldn't tell that it was a vegan ice cream because I think sometimes you can be left lacking when you have sort of vegan free-from products. But we wanted to make sure that ours just packed a punch with flavour and it still had that creamy texture to it. So there's no kind of almost reduction in the experience. Exactly. So for Little Moons, what comes next? I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of brands who are startups say, well, okay, that's our core product and we've got other ideas in development. Is there anything you can, can share with us? Um, we're definitely developing new flavours and, and we have new ideas which I can't share with you. But I think the next thing for us is just to continue increasing our capacity to manufacture, increasing our, the places that supply us. Um, I think particularly in Europe, we're growing. So yeah, we're, we're, we're geared up for a really busy 2022. In terms of your kind of future plans, in terms of how you plan to grow the distribution, the big supermarkets are now all on board. Where are you looking to grow the business next, outside of the UK? There's a big market in Europe that we have already supplied with food service and so we're just going to focus on making sure that we get that into sort of seed that into the grocery stores over there as well. Okay, so again, it's step by step, do it carefully, get it right, don't disappoint. Completely. It's been my absolute pleasure to be with you today and thanks so much for sharing your brand story. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Subscribe online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter. Hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.